Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. It's June, so it is Gun Violence Awareness Month in the United States. This is sort of where we are. It's in some ways important that we are doing this and raising awareness and having conversations. It's also a tragedy that gun violence is to such a point in this country that we have to have a month like this. But again, this is where we are. So we are going to step into the tension and we are going to have hard conversations. We're going to talk about gun violence, gun safety, how we begin to move the needle, how we begin to push towards a different and a better future where things like Gun Violence Awareness Month are no longer a part of our national list of priorities. But until that day, we will continue the work. We have a wonderful guest to start Gun Violence Awareness Month. Dr. Katrina Green is here. She is an emergency physician in Nashville, Tennessee. And over the past several years, she has embarked on a remarkable journey of advocacy. She does powerful work across multiple domains, multiple issues and items that require attention, that need advocacy, that need the hard grinding work to drive towards better. The issue of gun violence certainly has been one of them. And hearing from her about her journey towards becoming an advocate and building the skills that are necessary and building kind of that confidence and the collaborative spirit and keeping that energy high Her insights are just absolutely wonderful. She also is able to share some amazing experiences she has had. Certainly don't want to step on them in the intro, but you will want to listen because she has been a witness to history in the state of Tennessee for sure. As we move into Gun Violence Awareness Month, there are obviously many wonderful resources out there. We have been covering this topic on Explore the Space podcast for some time, and there is a link in the show notes to the archive of Explore the Space podcast episodes related to gun violence and gun safety. So I would invite you to please check those out. We've had some really extraordinary people to share their vision, their insights, and really help us learn and, and again, strive towards better. There's also a talk that I've been able to present in multiple locations around the country over the last year. It's a talk called Things I Didn't Learn in Training About Firearms, wherein we cover the Dickey Amendment. We talk about techniques and strategies for discussing secure storage with people we might be taking care of in a healthcare setting, but also with friends and family and colleagues. And also, finally, that piece of how do we become advocates during an epidemic like gun violence in the United States is right now. If you would like to have me come and present that for your audience, please email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. I would love to connect and talk about that opportunity and continue to share information and continue this discourse and continue trying to normalize conversations around firearms in the United States. You can check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. As before, you can email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com anytime. You can hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. Finally, I'm also proud to share that Explore the Space podcast is sponsoring Rock the Ride for Gun Violence Prevention. Now, in its sixth year, Rock the Ride was created as a way for the community to get involved by using their voice and their feet and their spirit to raise funds for local and national nonprofit organizations that are addressing critical issues around gun violence in the United States. We will be congregating in the Napa Valley in Yountville 
on Saturday morning, June 24th. You can either get on your bike and ride. You can do a three-mile walk and then join us together in the park. There's a burritos lunch and there will be booths. There will be information. There will be some speakers. Super excited about that. An honor to be one of them. And I'm delighted to be able to participate. There will be local and national leaders that are steeped in tackling this national epidemic for us all to learn from. And also just to kind of have that shared time and space as we deal with this massive challenge. For more information around this community event that is family friendly, it's open to all, please check out www.rocktherideusa.com. So all that being said, let's get to it. We have work to do, friends. We have work to do to continue to try to do better. Let's step into the tension and no one better to start that off with. Dr. Katrina Green. Katrina, welcome to Explore the Space Podcast. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you so much for having me. You and I, I would say, are the example of, despite the many problems, flaws, and probably the downward spiral of Twitter, that it can still connect people who have shared interests and shared passions with the desire to sort of learn from each other. I think we followed each other for a while, but it's been in the last year, I think, that we've been interacting more on Twitter. Do you still find it to be a useful place to exchange ideas and information? Is our is our med Twitter community still alive? I, I think it is. I, I don't think it's as vocal um, as it used to be since yeah. it changed within the last year or so. Um, but you can still get good information out there on Twitter and when there's a lot going on politically, um, I think it's still a great place to uh, portray information. So um, I'm still on the platform. I, I have not yet segued to some of the other platforms yet. I'm still figuring out Instagram myself. I don't understand yeah. how it works a lot. So I'm on there as well, but it's not. It, Instagram tends to be more my happy place. So that's it's like the living more, your best life platform for sure. Yeah. That's like the cat photos and the food photos and Twitter is like, <laughs> yeah. get down to business, you know? Yeah. I think that the, I agree with you. I think that the interchange of ideas is still there and those who are still on the platform are still doing that. I think that our numbers have dwindled significantly. Um, I think that there's also a part where people I think are a little more reluctant to sh share and converse in the same way that they did. I certainly do. Uh, I'm not as... That back and forth, you know, the threads of lengthy conversations with multiple people participating. I don't feel like that exists as much anymore, but it's still there enough. And and that kind of is how you and I have become connected. You have been doing for some time and sharing on Twitter for some time a strong amount and a large portfolio of advocacy work in the community sphere, in the state sphere where you live and in the political sphere preceding the social media world was was advocacy something that was a part of your life and your professional work or is it something that you've kind of picked up on over the last few years so i uh, really it's probably something that i've more picked up on the last couple of years um mm -hmm. pre-covid um you know you you do some things like i would you know donate to organizations and try to highlight you know to my friends with campaigns like let's let's all donate blood you know or Let's help refugees during this crisis and things like that. But I never really got, <clears throat> excuse me, involved in uh, you know local or state politics or advocacy work on a state level until really until COVID. Um, that was kind of what lit the fire within me and within a lot of physicians who saw 
our state handling the pandemic in very poor ways down here. And we know led to a lot of unnecessary illness and death. So speaking out was tough uh, during that, but we felt it was necessary. When you say we, did you feel like you had a community that was supporting you or did you kind of feel like it was a, a journey where you were an N of one? So it started off feeling like an N of one, you know, feeling yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm the only physician of my group that's out there being vocal. Um, and then somehow I got connected with this wonderful group of physicians that are active in a, in a group called Protect My Care. And so it's a physician advocacy group uh, that's led by Linda Sherrill, who is actually the, the wife of a retired OB uh, gyne physician. And she ran for Congress years ago, unsuccessfully, unfortunately. But she, uh, through that, was like, I still want to be involved in forming health policy. She led uh, the charge to expand Medicaid in our state back in the day, which unfortunately was also unsuccessful. We have a string of not a lot of successes here with, with some things, but uh, she put together this group and started recruiting physicians like myself and uh, my colleague, Dr. Amy Gordon Bono, who she could tell we just needed a little bit of coaching, how to get our message across and to a wider audience and kind of hone and target what we're saying so that's more palatable to people on both sides of the aisle. And that was just invaluable. So I never spoke to the media before I met Linda. I never felt comfortable in front of a camera before I met Linda. And uh, that definitely is something that changed during the pandemic. So now you're on the other side of it where I would imagine people sort of look to you as someone that can give that same advice where they feel compelled now for whatever their personal reasons are that they need to engage in some form of advocacy. As people have reached out to you, what are the sort of levers that you invite them to break through kind of moments of inertia? Because it's hard to start. I mean, let's acknowledge that everyone's journey is different. I'm kind of same as you. It's really been in the last half decade that advocacy has become a primacy for me. The moment of inertia is, is serious. And the self talk around why you shouldn't do it is very intense. What do you find to be effective to help people break through that? Right? I mean, it, it is very intimidating. Yeah, you know, I definitely felt yeah. like I didn't have the support of my um, hospital and uh, the institution I was working in at the time. So trying to figure out how to get around that is difficult for a lot of physicians. They feel muzzled by their hospital, their academic centers, the group that employs them. So learning that you can still do advocacy work despite all that, as long as you are open with whoever you're interviewing with, that you, your voice is only your own. You do not speak for your institution. You know, and telling media up front, like, yes, I work for this hospital, but do not put that in your story. You can put my name underneath me on, on, the, on the screen as Dr. Katrina Green, emergency physician in Nashville, and that is it. Um, and so learning that uh, was key, um, but just getting over the hump of getting vocal. You know, there's so many issues that physicians can advocate for that are so important these days, whether it's you know, gun safety right now reproductive healthcare, LGBTQ rights, you know, expansion of, of healthcare access, all of those things are very important for us to talk about. So finding that issue that lights the fire within you and, and just getting your voice out there. Um, so for me, it was initially just posting on Twitter about these things, and that caught the attention of the right people who figured out where my voice would be best heard. And now, yeah, that I've been doing it a bunch, I do regularly get texts from reporters or 
you know, private messages on Twitter from reporters saying, hey, we want to do a story about this. Would you be willing to speak to us or do you know someone who could? Um, And I'm also getting more adept at feeling like I don't have to speak up about everything because I'm an emergency physician, right? I don't really practice uh, gender affirming healthcare in my emergency department. So knowing like, okay, that's not something I should speak up on. Let me put you in touch with a colleague who can, you know, so it's, it's something that you just get better at as you go along. And the more you do these media interviews, the easier they get, the more you do it, the easier it gets just like anything, you know, you're working out, your muscles get stronger. As gotta you get reps. Them, yeah. Right. You gotta get reps. So just get over that initial fear and hesitation learn how to hone your message and just keep doing it. It gets easier. I think you absolutely know that what I've invited people to do is to practice with, you know, with a friend and have their friend ask them questions where there's no stakes, turn the camera on Mm -hmm. so that you're on camera um, and record it. But it's, you know, it's for your practicing, but having that environment where, you know, you, you need to practice, like, where do you put your eyes? What does your body language look like? You know, you just, you got to get reps. You got to kind of get into the, get into the gym and, and just, just <laughs> practice and get some sweat and get some, get some energy into it. I, I, the, the issues that you laid out, I think are really good to, to keep in mind that there is a lot. You called out one and we have an old explore the space episode on it that I'll put in the show notes from pre pandemic about Medicaid expansion and what happens when a state opts to not expand Medicaid or lets it lapse, which is what we're starting to see now. This does affect you as an emergency department physician, for sure. Mm-hmm. What is your take on this? Because I think that for physicians, if they understood this issue and the gravity of it and how it doesn't just affect the patients in their community that they take care of, but directly affects their practice, directly affects their hospital and their employer, would have a lot more vocality from the physician side. Right. So Tennessee, like I said, is, is a non-Medicaid expansion state. We're one of the 12 states that did not expand back in the day and still have refused to do so. And so we have the last statistic I saw was like over 700,000 Tennesseans that lack any kind of health insurance as a result. So that 700,000, 700, all of those patients, <laughs> you know, they don't have access to primary care and preventative medicine. So they end up coming to the emergency department for any kind of medical care. And those are also patients that if you think about Tennessee has really bad maternal mortality statistics. I don't know if we're at the very bottom of the U.S., but we're really close if we're not. A lot of those because these women who are getting pregnant, they haven't had access to preventative care, right? They haven't seen a physician that's told them, you need to quit smoking, quit drinking, take prenatal vitamins, lose weight, all of the things to optimize their health before they get pregnant, and also like figuring out how to get on our version of Medicaid, which is called 10 care here. If you're not already insured, it's not an easy process and people don't know how to do it. So we still see uninsured pregnant people coming into the ER in labor, you know, and it's like, you never had any prenatal care. Well, we're not a state that expanded it and it's not easy to get on our insurance plan. So those issues, um, lack of access to mental health care, you know, that is something that's been coming up over and over again in the gun safety you know, realm in the last few months, you know, the, the people on the one side of the issue like to harp on, oh, it's the mental health care issue. Okay, then let's tackle mental health care. Okay, let's fund it. Let's make sure everyone has access to insurance to be able to get mental health care. So learning how to, to, to you know, be an advocate for that um, 
in these states, you know, talking to the legislators, explaining to them that how the lack of expansion has hurt the people of, of our states. And in Tennessee, another unintended consequence of us not expanding Medicaid has been rural hospital closures. We are number two in the nation in our rural hospitals closing because, you know, they, they just couldn't afford all of the charity care. They were running in the red for years and years and then eventually just had to close their doors. So I forget how many counties we have in Tennessee without a hospital, but it's a lot. And so and anyone when a rural hospital closes, they don't reopen. That's that's it. No. It's done. Yep. And if you want to talk about, OK, so a lot of the Republicans, they're about the economy and jobs. And everything. If the hospital in a county closes, that's a lot of jobs lost. A lot that's of a jobs. lot of people without an employer. Yeah. And then other companies are hesitant to bring their companies to a county that doesn't have a hospital. Because where are their employees going to get health care? I mean, the domino effect of not expanding Medicaid, there's so many things you can tie in and so many different arguments you can make when you're talking to a legislator or a health policy you know, person to, to you know, tell them this is why it's important and why we should have done it, why we should still do it. It's not too late. You know, yeah. our legislators yeah. could still expand Medicaid any True. day now. There's no like time yeah. limit on this, like the ERA. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's. The cognitive dissonance, I, I, I wrestle with the cognitive dissonance that it would take as an elected official to not do that because you are directly impacting your constituents one way or the other. And it could become a very powerful campaign issue uh, one way or the other. And I, I really struggle with it. I learned a lot about it before and I've learned more from you know yourself and others who talk about it. Uh, it's just a real struggle when we think about, right, the core tenets of this country, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what Medicaid is for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that ripple effect that you identified, I hadn't thought about it in that way, too, of all of these pieces that then vanish when healthcare infrastructure is no longer intact in the way that people would expect. That's really, really profound. One of the things that comes up in the in the advocacy space, too, of people who want to be on a journey like yours is understanding what are the choices, right? What's the toolbox uh, of, of options? And, you know, I, I give talks as you do, and I, I, I try to give people as many options as they can, acknowledging that everyone is kind of in a different space. And I feel like you have kind of checked a lot of those boxes. You've done, you know, committees, you have spoken to reporters, you work on social media, you've called your elected officials, you've done campaign work. You've also crossed into a place that for me is anxiety provoking for sure. You You've joined protests you've you've participated in public spaces public expressions in public spaces of frustration um and the transparency with which you've done that has been really really powerful but i want to start with the fact that i'm a history major and i know that we're going to look back on some of the things that have happened in the last 6 months as important moments in american history you were in the state house <laughs> for one of them you were actually in the building take us through the that experience, what was it? And just sort of take us through what you were able to see, because you know, you'll, you're going to be a primary source for historians in the future. You were actually there. Right. So I guess I have to start from the beginning of how all of that transpired. Uh, so on March 27th here in Nashville, there was a school shooting at uh, a private Christian school, the Covenant School. We lost uh, three children that day. They were all age nine and three educators, uh, and then the shooter, of course. So um, the public outrage and grief from that happening, especially at a school that had all of the things that, that folks like to talk about, the doors were locked, 
<laughs> there was a an armed guard in the school. They practiced the lockdown drills, all of that thing. Everything you could think of to make a school safe was already in place in that school, and they still lost six lives that day. So three days later, there was a rally, and I reached out to the organizers of that rally because as an emergency physician, I felt like I had something to say and felt like what I would say would resonate with everyone at the rally, but especially anyone who's in the healthcare sphere. So I worked a night shift the day before the rally and then uh, drove to the Capitol and joined in and uh, and spoke uh, along with the students and teachers and um, gun violence uh, survivors and families of survivors who all spoke that day. It was a very powerful event. There were thousands of people that showed up at the Capitol that day. Many of them went into uh, the rotunda, so inside the Capitol building and into the galleries. And the goal that the organizer of the rally had was to force the state legislators to walk past students and teachers and parents as they went into the gallery for the, the Senate and the House sessions. And so I, I was at the back of the line. I didn't get to get into the Capitol for that part. Um, but I stood on the steps and I heard everyone chanting that we want gun control and we want it now. Um, and it was just it was just a wonderful feeling to be a part of that. Um, it was also heartbreaking because people were crying. There were children there with signs saying, am I next? And uh, while all this was happening, Three of the Democratic legislature, legislators, um, Representative Justin Jones, Representative Gory Johnson, and Representative Justin Pearson, were all on the House floor during session trying to speak about the need for gun safety legislation. Uh, and their microphones kept getting shut off. They kept getting gaveled down by the speaker because they were speaking out of turn. They weren't staying on the bill, yada, yada. So eventually they got fed up. And they approached what they call the well. It's like the podium where anyone who's like presenting a bill and they're actively discussing legislation, that person stands there. And I guess you're not supposed to stand there unless you're the person presenting the bill. Well, they weren't actively discussing a bill while this was happening. And so all three of them approached the well, grabbed the microphone and said, we have to do something. Do you not hear what is happening right outside these chambers? These people are calling out to us. And they're grieving and they need us to do something. Well, they got their microphone shut off again within like 45 seconds or something ridiculous like that. And they went out of session. That's when the bullhorn came out and all of this brouhaha about how they violated the rules of decorum. And so, uh, gosh, it was like not even a week later that the same uh, state house legislator, uh, legislature voted to expel all three of those lawmakers. And that day I was in the rotunda. I got in line at like, shoot, it was like before 8 a.m. It took me until afternoon to actually get inside the rotunda. Um, but I was there in the rotunda, not in the gallery. I wanted to be in the gallery. Justin Jones is actually my state representative. I live in his district. And so I wanted to be there as a constituent, but also a concerned member of the community and an emergency physician, you know, who cares for gun violence victims. So I was in the gallery and I was there chanting along with everyone else. I witnessed, you know, part of his, his speech um, and their interrogation of him. And that's what it was and their vote to expel him. And I could not tell you, I, I don't have the words to describe how I felt in that moment. 
I was so angry at what had just happened and so upset that, I mean, just tears. Uh, I saw one of our city council members, um, Councilwoman Sharon Hurt, who's been a really good friend to uh, both myself, but also a gun violence prevention organization that I'm a part of. And we just looked at each other in shock as to like that just happened. And we hugged and cried together there in the rotunda. I don't know how I, I was able to stay for the rest of it because he was the first one to be voted out. But I felt like this is a historic moment and I want to be here to witness everything today. So I stayed through Gloria Johnson's vote. Um, luckily, she wasn't expelled. I'm actually friends with her. And so it was like, thank goodness my friend is still there. We need her voice there. Knoxville is what she represents, you know, the her constituency in East Tennessee. And uh, I was like, thank goodness they haven't had their democratically elected representative stripped from them like I just have. Uh, but then I was able to be in the gallery for their vote for Justin Pearson. And again, just the shock of witnessing, you know, the falling apart of democracy, basically, is what, was what I felt like it was in the moment, right? These are two members of the, the legislature that were voted in by the you know, same 70,000 uh, district constituents that every other le- you know, legislator has been voted in by, and they have just taken our voices away from us. So, you know, I was in the gallery and I chanted, shame on you to those legislators on the state floor, just like everyone else. And yes, that came from a place of anger, um, but it was what I felt in the moment. And I felt like they were bringing shame on our state. And we've seen just an explosion of national media covering what happened. And unfortunately, I don't feel like any of the Republicans who did that have learned the the right lessons um, that, you know, rules of decorum being violated is maybe not um, that severe or that it doesn't require a punishment as severe as what was, was, you know, meted out. So a couple days later, I was also down at the Capitol again at the Metro city courthouse uh, to be there in the crowd and watch uh, the city council then reinstate Justin Jones. And then the mad dash up to the Capitol to get him, sworn back in and back on the state floor. He never missed a day of work. So it's like, you know what? Everything that happened was all for naught yeah. on the Republican side of things. On the Democratic yeah. side of things, it really ra- it fired us up. We are fired up here in Tennessee, and we're seeing what they're doing, and it's just not right. What do you think is the ripple effect? Because it's there's some water under the bridge. It's been several weeks since all of this mm-hmm. transpired. And, you know, we... The news cycle is so fast. I think most people um, at a national level, their attention is elsewhere in the state. What is the feeling? Is there still momentum? Is there focus on what's coming with the, you know, a general election in 2024? Is there organization or is it just that sort of impassioned energy that is trying to find a place to, to be channeled? I think I'm going to say yes to all. Um, Yeah. 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 So Governor Bill Lee. um, So the the legislature um, ended their general assembly early. So they were supposed to be there through the end of April or first week of May. They closed up shop early because of all the protests that were happening. They were sick of getting like yelled at by, you know, teachers and moms um, and other folks, too. It wasn't just teachers and moms, but a lot of it was right. Um, And students. They had several walkouts. Uh, of the different high schools that are close by. 
And so I think they were like, this is getting, I mean, they tried to call us insurrectionists, you know? Right. There are children and moms and teachers down here. We did not destroy any property. No one got arrested. Like the fact that they tried to say that it's all BS. Um, but we, we channeled a lot of that energy into asking people to call the governor, call the speaker of the house, call the lieutenant governor, who's like the, the head of the Senate and ask them uh, for a special session. We wanted to ask them, like, can you please not just like call them back, get us a red flag law, you know, get us a safe storage law, get us some common sense things that we can all agree on. Even responsible gun owners, they agree. Yeah, there should be a safe storage law. Like red flag laws make sense. 88% of Tennesseans agree with those things. So um, those phone calls actually worked. And Governor Billy announced a couple days after the session ended um, that he was calling a special session. And he just announced the date, the start date, which is frustrating because we thought it would start you know, in the middle of May or maybe June at the latest. He announced it August 21st. So this will be after the kids already go back to school. Um, in a bunch of the speculation that I'm seeing on Twitter and also, you know, in some other spaces is that the reason that he started it in August is because kids will already be in school. And so will the teachers and people will be like done with their summer break and they'll be back to work and they won't be able to be up at the Capitol and protesting and rallying. Um, maybe that's a cynical view, but, you know, there might be no. something to that. Um, but you know, I'm I would have a hard time. I would have a hard time believing anything else, quite honestly. Yeah. After what was seen there, um, you know, it's it's the way the game is played, and I think that you're absolutely right. That that's the most likely scenario. That there's no accidents, and there's nothing, especially in politics, right? Nothing happens mm-hmm. by coincidence. So the fact that it's after school is in session, I think it speaks volumes. But right, that's my take. That's my own opinion. Yeah, but I'm trying to, you know. I don't, I don't think I'm like a hopeless optimist, you know, but I am trying to at least keep hope alive. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so it's starting in August. People will be back in town. People won't be, you know, in Mexico or Europe or Florida on their vacations. They'll be back in town. And all of those rallies, all the protests that happened at the Capitol at the end of March and early April, that was while school was in session. So if we could do it at the end of the school year, we can do it at the beginning of the school year. So, you know, we're going to have to mobilize the teachers and students again to to have the, you know, the courage to do those walkouts that they did before um, and demand this. And so, you know, but but I'm part of a coalition that has formed out of all of those protests and rallies that is trying to to just keep this in the public's, you know, mind's eye and not forget like, yeah, this has been pushed to August, but let's not forget that while they are delaying this special session, we still have like a guns for all Wild West thing going on here in Tennessee. We have permitless carry. We have where people can store their guns in their cars unlocked, you know, and um, road rage incidents are crazy here too. You know, it's like we're not safe in Tennessee in the schools and the churches and the malls at the Waffle House, the movie theater. I mean, you name it, just driving down the freeway. You're not safe here in Tennessee because we have these super lax gun laws. And so every day they delay this session is a day that we're just not safe and secure. And so keeping that message at the forefront of people's minds um, and asking people to do what they can, you know, keep the pressure on the governor, keep the pressure on, you know, Speaker Cameron Sexton and Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally, keep calling their offices. They have shut off 
like they stopped answering their phones. So it's all going to voicemail. And so that's, you know, if you're afraid to make a phone call, it's a lot easier to speak to an answering machine than a real person. I learned that, you know, a couple of years ago, because it is intimidating to, to, to speak to some of these folks, but writing down what you want to say, and then calling and leaving a voicemail. I think it's important to note, though, too, is that that action does carry weight. You can feel like you're screaming into the void when you call an elected legislator's office. But every single one of those, they keep track of the number of calls they're getting. They track the volume of calls and they track the topics that come up. And I think the fact that that surge of of advocacy around calling the elected officials, that it, it had an effect, right? That this special session doesn't happen without that. And I think that that is a really important note that this can be done in a nonpartisan fashion. Your elected official is your elected official, whether you're in the same party or not. You you calling them is a really powerful way to use that voice. Yes, you're one person, but if you can do it with more and more and you can do it over and over, it is a change driver. And it also is a really effective way to kind of break out of that sense of inertia. Um, it's that, you know, there's a paper that I, that I was lucky enough to participate in in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, Catalyzing Action. And that's basically what the call to action was, is just start by making the one phone call and leave a voicemail. Um, and they're, that's what they're there for. They're designed. That's what your taxes pay for. They want that voice to be made, to be made right. plain. As a physician, though, as you're doing this, do you find that more healthcare professionals are also asking you for, hey, what's the roadmap? How do I do this? Are you getting pushed back? Is it a mixture? Um, what is your sort of overall sense of, of healthcare professionals wanting to walk the path that you've been walking in some way or another? So overall, it's been positive. Um, yeah. I, I actually, um, one of the uh, women who works at the Metro Health Department who, you know, saw me doing all my advocacy during COVID with like, we need a mask mandate. Let's get people vaccinated, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, she reached out to me and asked if I could give a lecture to Vanderbilt residents who are interested in advocacy about like, how do you lobby legislators? And so, you know, just started with the basics, like, well, know what district you're in, make sure you're registered to right. vote, you know, yeah. know who your representatives are, just finding out like, who's your state representative, who's your state senator, um, yeah. city council member, all yep. of that basics. And then just knowing that, like, it, like you said, it's your right, you're a constituent, Yes, you're a physician, but you're a constituent. You have every right to email and call these folks and show up at their offices. Um, now, I like to, you know, it's kind of like name dropping. Like I'm using my credentials. I'm putting my MD, F-A-E-M at the end of my name. I'm putting board certified emergency physician at the bottom of my emails. I put like that I not only work in Davidson County, that I work in Lawrence County. So that way I can reach out to more legislators. I can say like, hey, I may not be your constituent, but I work at the hospital in your district and I treat your constituents. So please listen to me when I say you need to expand Medicaid. Um, and so, you know, that was really wonderful um, getting to do that. Um, I've also uh, uh, joined the American Medical Women's Association. And and part of that was just <laughs> reaching out to uh, Teresa uh, Rohr uh, Kirchgraber. Uh, Gosh, I probably just massacred her last name. Um, she was the, she's the past president of AMWA, but when I first started reaching out to her, she was the chair of the advocacy committee during COVID. And I kept sending her emails like, can you please send this petition for a mask mandate to all the Tennessee members? Can you please like tell people that they could show up at this meeting and help, you know, support the board of health's uh, policy against misinformation for COVID and that kind of thing. I sent her so many emails that she was like, 
you should probably be on the advocacy committee. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> so now that's what I do. Um, so I've gotten just a ton of support from, from AMWA. Um, and my other physician colleagues, like they'll see me pop up on the news and I'll see them at work, you know, the next day or a couple of days later. And they're like, Dr. Green, you know, like Katrina, we saw you on the news. Like, that was so cool. Like, how do you do what you do? How can we get more involved? You know, I got another physician colleague to come with me to a protest because she saw me on the news. And so, you know, once you start doing this kind of work, you'll find there are other colleagues who want to do it and will do it with you. And, you know, it, it can be kind of lonely at first doing it on your own, but but just having the courage to talk to your colleagues about it, if you could do it in a nonpartisan way, you'll get more people uh, to come and join you. Um, but there's so many issues that so many phys- physicians care about and want to get more involved. And maybe not all of them will feel comfortable speaking to the press, you know, writing an op-ed, um, but everyone can get behind sending an email to legislators, sending email to committee members when they're voting on bills that affect the healthcare of your patients, um, and making those phone calls. Those are very easy things to do and help sway, um, you know, these legislators to, to listen more to uh, physician voices because we know what we're talking about, right? A lot of us That's are right. experts in our fields. And so, you know, please listen to us when we say like expanding Medicaid is good for Tennessee. Please listen to us when we say that legislating how, uh, you know, physicians can practice medicine is probably not the yep. best idea. So expanding Medicaid will get you more votes. People yes. will be happy that you did this and you will get reelected if you are able to do this, <laughs> uh, which obviously, right. That's the currency of the realm. And that's why, you know, people will, will dig their heels. And sometimes you will get reelected if you help people find a way to get health care. That what you've just described, though, is is a wonderful example. I think of of leading from the front, and uh, it's it's amazing that you've been able to do this. I'm glad that I have been able to follow you now for the last several years. How do people find you? How do they follow you? Uh, and how do they kind of continue to figure out? Because there, I, I do get the sense. I don't think I'm naive about this. I do think that there are still many thousands of American physicians who feel that sense now of urgency that maybe five, ten years ago they did not but are still in that place of, I really don't know how I'm supposed to get started. I am afraid there might be consequences. And some of these things that I, I am asked to do, they're really too far out of my comfort zone. How do people find you and follow you so that they can see that journey and see that representation? Right. So on Twitter, I'm at KGreenMD. And I am on there probably too much. <laughs> so, but if, you know, if someone wants to follow me, send me a private message. I'm happy to, you know, uh, distribute my email that way. Um, but I'm very happy to, to coach anybody on how to get involved in advocacy and do what I'm doing. Because it's so important for not just Tennessee, but many other states are having a really hard time with, you know, healthcare policy. We've seen some badness come out of Montana, um, Alabama is just, Yesterday, there's the no news state out of there. The I mean, that, yeah, there's, yeah, I'm in California and there's things here that need physician. I mean, there's no state in the union that doesn't need physician voices, right? This isn't exactly just, just in a time of catastrophe that we should be speaking. It should be part of the normal discourse. And I think that that's something that you represent really, really well. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes. And, and, you know, this was really special. I'm glad that we were able to do it. I, I have great admiration for what you have kind of created as a path for yourself. And I think you're setting a very powerful example for, for generations of physicians. This was totally awesome, Katrina. Thank you. Thank you so much.
My thanks once again to Katrina for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space Podcast. There's some links in the show notes. Please do check those out. There's also a link in the show notes about Rock the Ride, which is coming up June 24th in Yountville, California. You can go to www.rocktherideusa.com. I'm delighted that Explore the Space is a sponsor. There are amazing speakers. There is a bike ride you can do if you like. You can do the three-mile walk. There's a great event afterwards with some wonderful people to hear from and learn from. And just, again, that chance to be together, www.rocktherideusa.com. I will be there. Can't wait to see you there. Please do share the word about it. If you have a chance to subscribe to Explore the Space podcast, please do that as well. Leave us that five-star rating and a review. That really helps us out. You can hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. We will be back soon with more great episodes of Explore the Space podcast. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.